If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Twelve fifteen really is the beginning of a very particular English politics. I'm daring to use the word England, uh, which has actually survived eight years. That was David Starkey on the legacy of Magna Carta. While a former inmate of a concentration camp may laugh and be merry with others, he aches and bleeds inside because the old wounds will not heal. Even though he has left the spatially limited concentration camp, the terrible atmosphere of the camp still encompasses him. And that was Dan Stone describing the thoughts of a Holocaust survivor. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fifth podcast of April 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with David Starkey, one of Britain's best-known historians and a regular on BBC TV and radio. His latest book is Magna Carta, The True Story Behind the Charter, published to mark the upcoming 800th anniversary of the Charter Sealing by King John in 1215. And David spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton. This is is something that happens repeatedly. Why does English government in the 15th century uh, break down? Why, Why do you get ahead of the 7th? Because of defeat in the French War. Because because of the Hundred Years' War. Why why does John uh, get his come up? In other words, why does the entire hitherto extraordinarily successful structure of Angevin government collapse? It's because John loses France and, and then he comes perilously near to losing England uh, with Bouvines. Uh, you know, you, you, you have the, 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 loss of, the loss of Normandy, Anjou, Maine. Uh, Britain is the better half of Poitou, um, um, and then and then uh, he has this period of, of intense government of England, which is designed to uh, amass a sufficient from about twelve oh six onwards, designed to amass a sufficient cash hoard uh, to to take on Philip Augustus and reclaim it, and the whole thing goes catastrophically wrong with the absolute defeat of Bouvines in mm. twelve fourteen. So it's mili- always it's military defeat. Um, that, 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 again, you know, what goes wrong with the government of Edward II? Collapse against Scotland, Ballotburn. And this this is, you know, an absolute recurrent pattern. Mm. So what did the 1215 Magna Carta set out to do? The 1215 Magna Carta set out uh, to bridle absolute, well, three things, I think. To bridle uh, a king who was dangerous and unpredictable and made the law his whim or made his whim the law. Mm. Um, secondly, it set out, I think, 
to um, make it impossible for any other king to rule in the same way. Um, and those first two things are successful. The thing that is the absolute shift that is the great change, of course, is something very different. Um, it is that it then set out to create a machinery which absolutely bound any king in iron to those things, and that fails, um, uh, because that, that would have created a neo-Republican government. Mm. Um, and it's perfectly clear it's highly controversial from the beginning, um, and um, the... Uh, the uh, Hence the hence the um, hence the uh, denunciation of Magna Carta, its repudiation, vitiation uh, by the papacy, um, and also uh, the the way in which um, you have the wit of the royal conservatives, people like William Marshall and the papal legate Guala, um, to reenact, as it were, all the good sense bits of the charter, but leave out the extreme attempt of bridling the king. Yeah. And it seems to me that this is, this is the key to understanding Magna Carta, that it begins as a thoroughly extremist programme. Uh, the extreme elements are then cut out and it's adopted by the courtier elite. The, and in other words, it begins, as I said, it begins with the extreme Whigs. Mm. It's then uh, uh, re-edited by the Tories and, and it becomes common ground. Yeah, okay. So it loses much of its radical... It loses, I think it loses all its serious radicalism. Yeah, okay. On the other hand, of course, you then get the problem, which I try to highlight in my television programme, though the book tries to do something different. Um, the, 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 the Magna Carta then suspends the whole question of how it's to be enforced. Um, and and the, the, the 1225 Magna Carta actually sketches out what is the long-term way of dealing with which is the Magna Carta is reissued in 1225 in return for a grant of taxation. In other words, it's a deal. Mm. It's a deal done between the king and his people, the grant of supply in return for redress of grievance. It's the proto-parliamentary model. Okay. That's, that's how, in the fullness of time, it tends to be dealt with. But that never, that will never bridle. It will not bridle a Henry the Seventh. It won't bridle a Henry the Eighth. It will not bridle a Henry the Third and Edward the Second. Mm. Any king who wants to drive a coach and horses through it can. And so perpetually you get a return in the Middle Ages to this model of an aristocratic cabal committee, the, the 25 in some form or another, you know, be it the Lord's ordainers, be it, be it whoever. Mm. Um, they come back and they come back and they, it never works. It always go wrong. It always falls over into faction and all the rest of it until the absolutely decisive moment of the 17th century, which of course, as everybody knows, is the Glorious Revolution. And with the Glorious Revolution, uh, you then, you get, you, you get, and again, it's always driven by religion. The, the, th the only thing that produces a decisive solution to all of this is the question of religion. And I think we've, we've got to put back religion much more centrally into this long story uh, than has been the case before. The reason that things go wrong for the government of Britain in the late 16th, early 17th century is religion. That is it. Mm, okay. That is what, it's the royal supremacy and the fact 
that the religion of the king becomes separate from the religion of his people. Um, and that, and again, the whole. If you if you look at the whole if you look at the whole struggle of the petition of right, what the petition of right is an attempt at doing is a question of how do we settle the enforceability of Magna Carta. Magna Carta suddenly become a big question again because um, the king is using the machinery of the church and the church courts and is using the machinery of the prerogative courts against the liberty of the subject. And suddenly, of course, the king's law, the law of Cook and all the rest of it, which had been the great driving force of royal power in the Middle Ages, is turned against the prerogative but in the name of this Magna Carta view of kingship. Yeah. So that's what the Petition of Right is about. It's an attempt at making Magna Carta um, a fundamental law, a constitutional law. Now, curiously, that is, of course, a solution that's adopted in America. You, 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 you decide that the way that you will make, um, as it were, government follow the rules is by having a written constitution with a legal machinery that will hold them to it. The English go down a completely separate route in the 17th century um, and we decide instead that we will bind the king to, as it were, agree to what parliament decides. Um, in other words, we will have parliamentary sovereignty, not sovereignty of law. So, um, but all of these things are intrinsic in the Magna Carta debate. Mm. Um, it, 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 it's quite amazing how you can trace from those events in 1215, you can really see the antecedents of all our political development going in one way or another. To what extent is what we know or think we know about June 1215 incorrect? I think an awful lot of what we know about June 1215 is 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 in in the most extraordinarily detail uh, detail and accurately documented. I mean, the one of the things I, I one of the reasons I got so excited about it is that it's I think the first event in English history where you can actually see the whole political process at work. Uh, you know that uh, you know its antecedents. There was a clamour for the Charter of Henry. First. Uh, you know uh, that as things hot up, um, uh, they decide that's not enough. Um, you know that um, there is a coup, which again is so much like the Civil War of the 17th century, when the barons get control of London. Mm -hmm. What is it that put Charles I over a barrel? It's when the Parliament gets control of the city. Yeah. Um, and it's same story. And, and at which point, of course, the whole process cranks up. But you have you actually have the Articles of the Barons, which is the draft of Magna. We have a draft of this document. You can see, as I trace in that chapter, you can see how in a few days it has to be worked up, how it has to develop. You can envisage the poor clerks of the Chancery, you know, working, working, yes. <laughs> having an essay crisis. Yes. <laughs> They've got five, five days to sort this out. I mean, obviously, the, 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 the element that's got completely wrong is that we somehow imagine that Magna Carta established at a stroke uh, this um, foundation of the rule of law, constitution of England and all the rest of it, rather than it being um, an, a document produced in a, in a moment of extreme crisis and haste, uh, which, which had uh, about a third of it 
really being designed both as a peace treaty, but also as an extremely even un, uneven and 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 uh, extremely lopsided peace treaty. Because of course, John didn't have a leg to stand on. Mm. He had no party, and he'd lost control of his capital. Um, but also um, one that is is designed really to create a revolutionary regime. The, we, we, we never write enough about the 25. The 25 are a genuine committee of public safety. Um, they are self-selected. Uh, they are self-recruiting. They swear an oath. Everybody else has to swear an oath to them. Mm. They have to swear. The king has to swear an oath in advance that he will actually follow what this is. That's amazing. I know. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, uh, and, and they use this machinery actually to create an alternative government. Mm. Um, and I really do think that, that even a historian as great as Jim Holt didn't bring out this extraordinary radicalism. Mm. So, so when you know the Magna Carta settlement breaks down in the middle of Henry III's reign, um, and and you get um, you get Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, leading another baronial revolt, even he hesitates to go quite as far until the very end of the process, where where it's clear that it, it is a matter of life and death. Um, uh, as as the barons have gone in 1215. So it's this astonishing initial radicalism, which is very quickly abandoned by the accident of John's death, the accident of the succession of a minor, the immense level, middle, level-headed, middle ground, good sense of somebody like William Marshall. Mm. I mean, the best sort of old-fashioned conservatism. Um, why did it fail? Uh, who can we pin the blame on for that? Well, I think the, the, the settlement was absurd. It could never have worked. I mean, the, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the settlement of 1215 had to fail. The, the machinery of the 25 was such that no king could have accepted. So it was bound to fail. It was bound to fail. It was also bound to fail because the, uh, the, the settlement tries to present itself as a middle ground settlement. It tries to be, which is the role, you know, desperate role of Stephen Langton in trying to act as a kind of a, a balance, count, counterweight between the two sides. Um, but its very nature was that it was designed to bring John to heel. He also had not a political leg to stand on. He'd lost control of London. He had only a tiny party amongst the aristocracy and so on. Um, so um, it, it could never have been an equitable settlement um, because it's designed uh, to be a one-sided bridle on the king. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, it becomes a long-term settlement once you strike out that element of the charter. Again, you see, one of the things that I think, one of the things that we, we, we made a mistake on, the, the Magna Carta of 1215 has 62 or three clauses. The long-term Magna Carta has 40. Mm. A third of it is struck out in 1216. Mm. Um, uh, and, and again, it's so modern and so civil service <laughs> I mean, obviously, you take out all the stuff to do with the Committee of the 25, but then there are all these other clauses on, uh, on Jews uh, and debts to Jews, on the, um, the, um, uh, the, the, the composition of um, uh, whatever the representative body that's going to read discutages and talages and whatever. And there's this wonderful phrase, these are weighty and difficult. 
and it better be postponed. You know, it's it's so it is so Sir Humphrey. Yeah. You know, we we yes. will park all this, and then of course it all gets quietly forgotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but 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 it the, 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 in that sense, although these people are all speaking Norman French, there's something terribly English about it all. It's almost as though we begin by inventing English style <laughs> politics in, yes. you know, as back as twelve and no doubt I romanticize but yes. there we are. Yeah. So obviously John then dies um, and Henry comes to the throne. To what extent is the reissue in twelve sixteen a surprise? Well I think it's a brilliant political coup. I think it takes everybody by surprise. And of course remember it's not only that, that Henry is Henry this little boy comes to the throne. England is actually in the middle of the throes of an invasion. Again, we've always forgotten this. That that once it becomes clear uh, that John is going to resist the charter. Uh, once it's clear that he is winning, uh, despite the fact that he doesn't have London, the barons are traitors. They invited the French, they invited Prince Louis, and immediately the better half of England falls to Louis. So when little Henry III succeeds, he's at Devizes. Uh, John has died at Newark. He's been carted the whole of the way across to Worcester. But the dominion of, 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 of little Henry III is barely the west of England. Um, in the in the southeast, uh, the king only well, the royal government only retains control and only just of 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 of, of Lincoln and uh, and and of um, uh, and and of Dover. Now, you you've lost and Windsor. Hmm. You've lost all the rest of the key castles. And so, um, but what is what is very striking is, and I've not understood this, and I I go into how Louis presents himself and how the baronial faction present themselves. What is astonishing is um, you invite Louis in because you want to get you get rid of John, but Louis does not issue or reissue Magna Carta. It seems completely extraordinary. That, and, and I think that raises very sharp questions about how serious magnates like Robert Fitzwalter and Sarah de Quincy are about it. Um, it raises even questions about people like Simon Langton, who is you know, one of the ideologues of this process. Um, but of course, it creates this wonderful political opportunity for the government of Henry III, which is to st steal the clothes of the Whigs. Yes. Uh, you reissue the charter, but you cut out everything that's difficult and awkward. Yeah. Um, now, remember, it doesn't work instantly. It is that Henry III uh, is only secure on the throne once two things have happened. Uh, first of all, and they're both military victories. Again, right, the whole thing begins with a military defeat. It will only be ended by a military victory. First of all, uh, you get the uh, stunning victory of William Marshall, sort of, you know, this man's 70. He still sort of leaves his troops down, you know, 70. Nowadays, yeah. <laughs> then, I'm 70, I couldn't. <laughs> uh, 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 you charge it off into battle and you win the Battle of Lincoln. And then there is the defeat of the uh, invasion force led by Blanche of Castile, who sounds an absolutely amazing woman, um, <laughs> um, uh, in uh, uh, Henry II's granddaughter, can't you tell? Um, uh, 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 her fleet uh, is defeated off Sandwich and you, the French lose control of the sea. Mm. And at that point, of course, collapse of Stout Party, collapse of Louis, withdrawal of the French with a very large indemnity. Mm. Um, and 
the restoration of, of the House of Anjou. As to what extent did it actually change people's lives in 1225, 1215? Did it make a difference to the all? Oh, yes, person? I think it, I mean, it, it, has, it, has very, it makes a very, very quick impact on law. Um, and on and on the development of law, it's very individual clauses are very quickly pleaded. Mm. Uh, there, what is striking is just how many copies are circulated. So why should we care about Magna Carta? We care about it because it's there. It um, there's a myth. It's an anniversary. All these banal things. Why should we care about it in substance? Because much of the myth is true. 1215 really is the beginning of a very particular English politics, and I'm daring to use the word England, uh, which has actually survived 800 years. The lineaments of England and the English political system are first sketched out in 1215, or rather, they're first sketched out in that crucial decade-long we could call it the crisis of the charters, uh, like Conrad Russell's crisis of the parliaments, from 1215 to 1225. But everything really begins then. And you can see so much. You can see the whole dialogue of Whig and Tory. The charter begins on the extreme left. Uh, It survives only because you have Tories clever enough to realise that they've got to steal the Whigs' clothes. Um, You can see models of particular statesmanship, uh, which again constantly repeat themselves. You can see, of course, uh, this this crisis of magna this crisis of charters leading directly to the establishment of parliament the whole uh, structure of, of parliamentary government really begins uh, with the reissue of the charter in 1225 in return for grant of taxation so it matters and it matters and it matters what new impression of magna carta would you like readers to leave this book with and its legacy i suppose i would like them to Think about Magna Carta not as some kind of sainted origins of the English constitution, but a product of crisis, of revolution narrowly averted, and of the thing that we've all become so contemptuous of, which is the political process, which is compromise, which is wheeler dealing, which is not getting quite everything that you want, which is about recognising that your opponents may have a point. Uh, now, we become very contemptuous of all of those things. Um, it is very dangerous to be contemptuous of those things because that's the root of a Robespierre or of a Lenin. Um, English history is a very different lesson. It's a lesson of this perpetual compromise, perpetual accommodation. That was David Starkey. Magna Carta, the true story behind the Charter has just been published in the UK by Hodder and Stolton. In the US, it is due to be published in September. And you can read more from Matt's interview with David in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this issue, you'll find articles on the English Civil War, the sinking of the Lusitania, and the history of slave ownership. You can get hold of our May edition now in all good newsagents and digitally. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. Britain is facing a collapse in society, similar to ancient Rome in 100 BC, because we've lived too peacefully for too long, a scientist has claimed. According to Dr Jim Penman of the RMIT University in Melbourne, the collapse of civilization is inevitable because Britons no longer have the genetic temperament to advance after decades of peace and comfortable living. Penman told the Sunday Telegraph the huge success of the Victorian era will not be repeated, because people in the UK have lost the biological drive for innovation. He compared today's Britain to the decades before the fall of the Roman Republic, where social tensions were rife, the gap between the rich and poor was increasing, and extremism was growing. He predicted that by the end of the century, the UK will no longer have the power, or will, to protect itself against a serious invading force. In other news... A major excavation is underway at Hougamont Farm near Waterloo, Belgium, where Napoleon's army was thwarted. An international team, including battlefield archaeologists from the University of Glasgow, is preparing to investigate an area dubbed the Killing Zone. There, in June 1815, thousands of French soldiers attacked the farm, which was held by British forces under the command of the Duke of Wellington. Napoleon's forces were eventually defeated and there were tens of thousands of casualties. It is thought there is a mass grave of soldiers located there, BBC News reports. The team has so far discovered a scatter of British and French musket balls, believed to be some of the first shots fired in the Battle of Waterloo. Meanwhile, a fundraising appeal to meet the costs of reburying Richard III has reached its £2.5 million target. Leicester Cathedral officials said the money had been raised through grants, local businesses and individual donors, BBC News reports. £1.6 million was spent on the tomb and changes to the cathedral, and the rest went on displays and staff to handle increased visitor numbers. The fundraising appeal was launched in November last year, with a £500,000 donation from the Diocese of Leicester. The Dean, the Very Reverend David Monteith, said... We are so grateful to the generosity of our many donors that has enabled us to raise every last penny needed to reinter the king with the dignity and honour that we set out to achieve. Richard III's remains were discovered underneath a car park in 2012 and were reinterred at Leicester Cathedral in March this year. Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, I'm pleased to announce that we will be holding two History Weekend events this autumn one in Malmesbury, Wiltshire, from the 15th to the 18th of October, and the other one in York, from the 25th to the 27th of September. Full details will be available from Monday the 4th of May at the website historyweekend.com. And BBC History magazine subscribers will be able to purchase tickets from that website on that date. Tickets will then go on general release from Monday the 11th of May. This year, as you'll no doubt be aware, marks the 70th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. And alongside that, the anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi concentration camps. 
historian Dan Stone of Royal Holloway University of London has written a new book on the subject that considers not just the liberation but also the complex aftermath as those who have been freed struggle to adapt to their new lives. I spoke to Dan recently to find out more. For those soldiers who actually liberated these camps, what kind of an experience was it and did they have any idea of what to expect when they got there? Um, It varies depending on who you're talking about and when. Uh, So the first uh, big camp to be liberated was Majdanek, which was liberated by the Red Army. And there I think uh, the Soviets had some sense that there were places to be liberated that included concentration camp prisoners because they'd already liberated obviously the Soviet Union itself and then pushed the the Third Reich back westwards during the process of which they'd liberated many regions and discovered places, for example, Transnistria, the area of Ukraine that had been occupied by Romania, where there were large numbers of uh, Jewish survivors. So it wasn't a complete shock, but nevertheless, the camp itself, I think, as opposed to liberating towns or or regions where there were survivors, was something of a shock. Uh, and I don't think uh, the Red Army soldiers were expecting to see what they did see there, which were the remains of uh, the gas chambers, um, corpses, uh, bones and so on in, in large numbers scattered about. When it comes to the, a little bit later on, to the uh, camps liberated by the Western Allies, uh, Bergen-Belsen, Dachau, Buchenwald and so on, there's mixed information. On the one hand, there are many reports by GIs uh, and privates who say we had no idea what a concentration camp was. Uh, and when we saw one, uh, it was an incredible shock. And these are, are, are terrible to read because you forget often these, we're talking about kids of 19 or 20, and they may have had considerable war experience. Uh, but all of them say seeing soldiers killed on the battlefield was nothing compared with seeing huge numbers of civilians who were being killed in mass numbers for for no reason that they could fathom. And so for them, it was an enormous shock. On the other hand, and, and this is something that I think still requires further research, uh, there's a sense in which knowledge had been lost. So before the war, there was quite a lot of information available about the concentration camps in the Third Reich, in the international press. And during the war, there were reports about the killing of Jews and the mistreatment of other civilian populations. So why there was such a shock on the discovery of the camps isn't really clear. I think it has to do with the fact that uh, huge numbers of concentration camp inmates were being shunted Uh, westwards as the Red Army was approaching. So there was chaos in the whole system. Uh, The camps themselves were overcrowded, chaotic. uh, And what the, I guess what the soldiers discovered there was somehow out of kilter with what they were expecting to see, if they were expecting anything at all. Did these soldiers, did they encounter any remaining German uh, guards or SS officers, or had they all fled by the time that the Allies would arrive? No, they did encounter them. In some places, uh, most of the guards had fled. That includes uh, Majdanek and uh, Auschwitz and a few other places. Uh, but in, in some camps, either some of the SS remained, whilst some fled, uh, but often it was the case that uh, some SS remained, but also many auxiliary helpers. So uh, camp guards who were Ukrainian or Hungarian or from the Baltic states who were SS auxiliary members, they were often still there. So when the British uh, liberated Belsen, for example, the, the commandant of the camp, Josef Kramer, was still there along with a contingent of SS and quite a large number of Hungarian and other uh, so-called Volksdeutsche, so ethnic German, Germans from Romania and elsewhere who, who were uh, still there. And, uh, well, the the response of the soldiers, as you can imagine, was 
often quite brutal and they were often rather unsympathetic as you can imagine to to their attempts to explain what had been going on one uh, one ss man who who claimed uh, after being uh, being found there that uh, well he apparently broke down in tears and, and claimed he never really wanted to be a nazi and it was it was really it was really unpleasant uh, being a nazi and uh, in the, the belson trial uh, he was this argument was of course rejected and and he was hanged uh, but there was another uh, one of his colleagues was a, a romanian volksdeutscher who uh, accepted the fact that uh, what he'd done uh, was terrible and and pleaded for uh, clemency on the basis that he was he was sorry but uh, he too was hanged actually after the the belson trial so there were quite a lot of these people still captured by the soldiers what kind of condition were the survivors in the people who, not obviously the guards anymore, but the, the camp inmates, what kind of condition would they have been in by the time that they were liberated? All very bad. Uh, that's the, the, the first thing that you can say. But again, it, it varied to some extent, depending on the, the camp and uh, who the prisoners were. These are, of course, large generalisations. But on the whole, the political prisoners who were organised in uh, camp underground movements and had established uh, camp committees and so on, were not in as bad shape as Jews and slave labourers who'd been force marched uh, from one camp to another. Uh, and so the the image that we have of the the really emaciated, brutally treated survivors relates really to the large numbers of uh, of Jews and um, Eastern European slave labourers who'd been marched westwards at the end of the war. Because as the Red Army approached the camps in Eastern Europe, the Nazis evacuated those camps. They called them uh, evacuations. We now refer to them as death marches, uh, on which huge numbers of people died. But the survivors then ended up in Belsen, in Dachau, in Buchenwald, and they were basically left to fend for themselves. So, again, this, this image that we have of huge numbers of emaciated survivors crowded together stems from this end period of the war, when these tens of thousands of Jews were suddenly forced to march to places like Belsen, where there was no food uh, in the last week of the camp, no water. And so they were dying in huge numbers. The awful images that we have of the camps on the liberations show for example, the living and the dead uh, intermingled with one another, naked inmates with obviously who have lost any sense of shame about wandering around naked, people scrabbling around looking for something to eat and so on. So the, the condition they were in was unthinkable, really, in, in these camps. These people were dying, first and foremost, of starvation, but also most of them had typhus, uh, tuberculosis and, and other diseases. I think most uh, most people now have seen those uh, those photographs and, and the films and it's, it's quite clear that the vast majority of survivors were in a, a terrible, terrible condition, which is why so many of them died after the liberation. Yes, I was going to say, how much of a, a challenge was it for the Allies to then keep these people alive because they were obviously in such a desperate state when they encountered them? An enormous one. In the case of, of Belson, which uh, is best known to, to British um, readers, I think it was clear that the army was unprepared what they were going to find there, which I don't think was the, the army's fault. But when the camp was surrendered uh, to the British, they were told by the Germans who surrendered the camp that they would find a, a small camp with a few thousand people, but that uh, typhus was there. When they actually liberated the camp, they found, uh, apart from 10,000 unburied corpses, about 60,000 people, probably 40,000 of whom were, were close to dying in Belsen. So the camp itself rapidly became the largest hospital in Europe. But the in the immediate few days, the initial period of what we might call medical liberation or, or rehabilitation was thoroughly disproportionate to the task uh, at hand. So uh, there were clearly heroic actions taken by uh, the liberating soldiers to re-establish the water supply, to find food, uh, to divert uh, medical care from the front line to the camp and so on. 
And very quickly, there were further medics and other helpers uh, on the scene, a group, a group of Quakers, groups of uh, medical students, nurses, including German nurses from the local area who were rounded up to help. Uh, but even so, even within weeks and, and months after the liberation, uh, inmates were still dying because it was effectively uh, simply too late to save them. And for those that, that did survive, how did they respond to the people who liberated them? How, how did they feel towards them? Again, it varies. I mean, I think um, in retrospect, all of them feel enormous uh, gratitude to the liberators. But at the point at which they were liberated, very many of them were too ill to understand what was happening. And that's something that sometimes gets forgotten. I have some uh, quotations in the book from the point of view of both liberators and liberated that show that the liberating soldiers could see that the inmates uh, often didn't really understand what was happening. Even uh, three weeks after the the liberation of Belson, uh, one of the uh, medics says that he went into the huts where the, the inmates were still uh, still being housed to tell them that VE Day had happened and that there was no response. They didn't really understand what that meant uh, for them. Um, and the same is true of from the liberator's point of view. In retrospect, many of them say, well, I was, I was in a coma or I was too dazed, I could hardly move. I didn't really understand. And uh, sometimes they say it was only after we received some food, it was only after somebody treated us kindly or uh, moved us from one place to another, which itself was a frightening experience because these inmates associated any kind of authority and being moved somewhere with potentially their deaths. So it took a while for them to realize, I think, that these people were actually there to help them. That's not universally true, of course. There are also stories of people who were well enough when the liberators arrived uh, to understand. And so there are also uh, very many moving stories of survivors running to greet their liberators, kissing them and uh, hugging them and, and so on and so forth. But I think the majority of um, inmates uh, took, took a while really to understand what was, what was happening. And did the treatment of the people who were liberated vary much between those who were liberated by the Red Army and those who were liberated by the Western mm. Allies? No, I don't think it did, actually. Uh, the, the crucial difference really is that the Red Army had fewer survivors to deal with uh, because most of the camps that they liberated had already been evacuated, with some exceptions. So Theresienstadt, for example, at the very end of the war, there were quite large numbers of, uh, of people still there. But actually, the, the Soviets did the same thing as the Western Allies, which was to establish medical care, hospitals, to use uh, local doctors and often survivor inmates who had uh, medical training in Poland, for example, in Auschwitz uh, or Majdanek, to assist the survivors. But what they also did do was to uh, wind up those programs much more quickly. I think, than, than the Western Allies did, and to try and get the survivors uh, back home as quickly as they could. So the, uh, the, the medical care runs on much longer in the case of the Western Allies, but that's because more of the survivors, particularly the Jews, wanted to get to the Western zones because they felt that they no longer had homes in Eastern Europe. And by ending up in camps in, in the Western occupation zones of, of Germany, they felt they had a better chance to get somewhere they wanted to go. That in itself is an interesting question, because like you say, a lot of these people, their homes would have been completely unrecognisable. Where, I mean, where did they want to go in general? And where did the Allies have any plan for where they should end up? Yes, well, before the end of the war at uh, Yalta and before that as well, the, the Western Allies and the Soviets had agreed that at the end of the war, citizens of each of, of those countries would be uh, assisted to return home. Uh, that means that the citizens of the Soviet Union and countries that the, the Soviets were now claiming as part of the Soviet Union, so the Baltic states, uh, eastern Poland, which had been incorporated into Ukraine and Belarus and so on, um, were now supposed to return to the Soviet Union. Very large numbers did, but by summer of 1945, there were still about one million 
displaced persons or, or DPs who were considered to be unrepatriable. That's to say, they were either Soviet citizens who refused to return to the Soviet Union because they didn't want to return to um, to their lands, which had now been taken over by the Soviets, or because they were collaborators, or perhaps both. And there were large numbers of Jews who had discovered that, um, for example, in Poland, uh, they were the sole survivors of their families, often the sole survivors, or one of only a few survivors of, of whole communities, uh, and that their former homes had been taken over by local Gentiles and so on. So they, they had nowhere to go. So they ended up in the displaced persons camps in the Western uh, occupation zones. Most of them wanted to go either to Palestine or to the US. The Jewish citizens of Western Europe, who were freed in the camps, basically went home very quickly at the end of the war to the Netherlands, to France and to Belgium. But the vast majority of, of the rest wanted to go to Palestine or the US. And that's why they ended up sitting there for so long, because unfortunately, the places where they wanted to go uh, were not available as options to them. What was the plan of, say, Britain and the other Western allies as to if, if there wasn't an option for them to necessarily migrate to either Palestine or America, mm -hmm. what was, did they envisage them doing? Um, well, this, I don't think they envisaged anything very clearly. They wanted to find a solution whereby they could gradually emigrate. So the British did allow a small number of, uh, of Jews, according to the quota, to emigrate to Palestine uh, in a way that was supposed to be controlled and not to fuel Jewish-Arab conflict in, in Palestine. Uh, the Americans did also allow uh, small numbers into the U.S., but basically, they were uh, housing the Jews in uh, DP camps with the hope that uh, they would pers could persuade other countries to uh, to take them in, uh, which they did uh, to some extent. Australia took in about uh, something like 17,000 Jews in the year or two after the war. Canada took some, the Latin American countries and elsewhere. And the, the Jews in the DP camps, if they'd wanted to go, let's say, to Western Europe, they might they might have um, been able to do so. But the majority of them simply held out for what they wanted. Which is why, actually, the, I think this is often forgotten. Many of the, the DP camps lasted for much longer than, than we imagined to the, the late 1940s and in uh, one or two cases into the 1950s. So was it with the creation of the State of Israel that, that the sort of populations of the camps would have reduced a lot because then they could all go to Israel if they wanted to? Yes. Uh, after 1948, the vast majority of the, the Jewish DPs then went to Israel. And after 1950, after the, the US amended the uh, the DP Act, then about the same number were able to go to the US. And they went in stages and, and in, in different uh, routes, of course. So some who emigrated to Palestine or then to Israel uh, did that as a stepping stone to getting to America, which they then later did. Some went to Israel and then returned to Germany because they didn't like it in Israel. Not not very many, but it's an interesting phenomenon. And some, of course, then uh, went to went to Britain or to uh, to other countries. But of of the let's say uh, 250,000 or so DPs in the summer of 1945, probably about half went to Israel and half to America, uh, and some some tens of thousands to other countries. Why do you think it was that they all were so passionately wanted to go either to Palestine or then Israel or, or America as opposed to other Western countries, say? I think for the surviving Jews of the, the Holocaust, the feeling was very widespread amongst them that Europe was simply no longer a place where Jews could live. That was it, quite simple. And that for many who'd lost their families and their homes and so on, Zionism offered a kind of substitute family, if you like. So for, particularly for young survivors, and most of the survivors were young, for fairly obvious reasons, I suppose, They many of them joined uh, incipient kibbutzim that were being formed, so the collective farms that were being established. So oft, there were 
there were kibbutzim established in Buchenwald in uh, various other camps. Um, Jewish survivors took over local farms or were allocated land by the Allies where they could set up these kibbutzim, which were kind of pioneer training centers for uh, for life in Israel. So often these places offered a kind of uh, substitute family for people who'd, who'd lost their families. And there's an argument amongst historians as to whether the Zionism in the DP camps was generated, if you like, cynically by by the Palestinian Jewish leadership, the Yishuv. That's to say they exploited the surviving Jews to say, uh, we're the only people who can help you, or whether it emerged in a sort of organic way amongst, uh, amongst the survivors out of a sense that it was their only real option. Uh, and I think you can you can see both, of, of course, um, in in the way in which the survivors who had a sense of their own agency uh, acted, but they also were, of course, being influenced by agents coming from Palestine to try and encourage them uh, to move. And the same is true with uh, America. America, of course, had already a large Jewish population. Many survivors uh, had relatives who might have emigrated uh, in the, at the turn of the 20th century or, or before the war. Uh, and so America was a place that was A, not Europe, and B, where they already had some kind of connections. Some of these people you say stayed in these camps for a number of years. Did that lead to any tensions between the liberators and the liberated? It did. Uh, this is one of the sadder aspects of, uh, of the story, particularly with respect to the British. The Americans played it more cleverly, in a sense, in that the, the Americans were more open to accepting Jews as DPs, even if they didn't meet, strictly speaking, the criterion for being a, for being a DP. So Jews returning from uh, Eastern Europe, say, who hadn't, hadn't been in Germany at the end of the war, or Jews in, who'd been in exile in the Soviet Union during the war, uh, who then found that they couldn't return to their homes in Poland, they often moved to the American zone where they knew they'd be uh, better treated, whereas the British tried to enforce a, a stricter definition of, uh, of who was a DP. But over time, this also meant that uh, the Americans also took the line that the British, as had been recommended by various reports, the Harrison report and so on, should allow more of the DPs into Palestine. This was also somewhat cynical. It was used as a, a ploy to say the Jews should go to Palestine, not to the United States. Uh, but it meant that the, the British, uh, who had liberated the Jews in, in Belsen and, and more widely in the British zone, then started to fall out with the committees that were the political committees that were being formed in the British occupation zone. So uh, Josef Rosenzaft, for example, who became de facto the, the spokesperson for the liberated Jews in the British zone, although he writes very movingly in, uh, in various uh, places about how grateful he was to the British liberators, what great care they took in terms of medical care. He nevertheless uh, became highly critical of, of the British stance vis-a-vis -vis allowing Jews into Palestine. And so you have a situation whereby the, the people who liberated the camps then start to become rather bitter towards the people that they'd liberated and vice versa. And this leads. This does lead to tension. Leads to tension uh, within uh, the British Army itself. So there are uh, tales. For, I've been told, for example, by uh, one uh, one man who was a, a private in the the British Army at, at Belson that he was removed from his post because it was suspected that as a Jew he was acting as a kind of middleman, spreading uh, Zionist propaganda, which was not true. But nevertheless, um, I think that there are a few instances of this whereby within the army itself. There was suspicion about uh, Jewish members of uh, of the military, and it, it led to very uh, bad relations, often between the the British uh, military authorities and the the committees, the political committees. And in in Britain, in the context of the worsening situation in in Palestine, there were anti-Jewish riots in in Birmingham and Liverpool and and elsewhere in the UK in 1947, which have been largely airbrushed from history. But they're also rather hard to understand. There's a strong anti 
Jewish feeling in parts of uh, Britain in 1947, accompanied with still a very strong sense of sympathy for concentration camp survivors. And the two things somehow coexist in a rather uneasy fashion. Obviously, a lot of these people were young at the time and have lived many decades after it may still be alive now. What kind of long-term legacy did these events have on both the liberators and the liberated? They never forget it. It's it's perfectly clear that many, I think many survivors have gone on to lead ostensibly normal lives. Uh, they had for several years after the liberation often to travel uh, illegally, in quotation marks, across borders to, uh, to get to DP camps and then to try and uh, migrate to somewhere they wanted to go. They had to learn new languages, learn new skills, meet new people, start new families. But many of them, I think, eventually settled into what we might consider something normal. Nevertheless, uh, and I use this uh, as a a quotation in the book, it's quite clear that there's a a sense in which what happened to them never never leaves. The the notion of uh, Holocaust trauma is is quite well understood amongst uh, scholars. The idea that people, whether they want to actively forget or not, cannot. And many survivors remained and, and remain traumatized by what's, uh, what's happened to them. I've got a quotation from uh, one man called uh, Ernst Israel Bornstein uh, at the end of my introduction, who writes, while a former inmate of a concentration camp may laugh and be merry with others, he aches and bleeds inside because the old wounds will not heal. Even though he has left the spatially limited concentration camp, the terrible atmosphere of the camp still encompasses him. It is as though the cat was still inside him. Uh, so you see that the, this idea that the camp is something that you never quite escape is, I think, quite common amongst uh, the survivors. And for the soldiers, uh, the same is exactly true. There's there's a lot of very moving testimonies given by soldiers, American, British, Russian, from the 1980s up to the present, where they also talk about the fact that they can never get these images out of their mind. They can't forget. And it remains deeply imprinted uh, on, on their minds. And they often, even six, seven decades after the event, still still start to cry when, when talking about these things. So I think it's, it's clear that this is a defining moment for all involved. And, and in the years that followed the liberation, how easy was it for people to talk about these events? And, and how keen also were people to listen to what they had to say? That's quite an interesting question because it, it was assumed for quite a long time that uh, nobody really spoke about these events in the immediate aftermath of the war. But in fact, there were, I think that within certain circles, people did. So I've got some discussion in, in the book of, for example, survivor historians. So there were many historical commissions set up uh, across uh, Europe at this point in Paris, in Warsaw, in Budapest, in Munich, uh, elsewhere, where survivors started to interview other survivors and using questionnaires and so on to try and build an early set of uh, testimonies from which a historical account could be uh, could be written. Secondly, there were a few early attempts at uh, what we would now recognise as uh, collecting oral testimony. So there was a man called David Boda, uh, originally uh, from the Baltic states, but uh, who was uh, an American citizen by now, who went back to the DP camps in France and Italy in 1946 to interview survivors. And he used an early kind of um, recorder, a wire recorder, to to record these uh, interviews. And he then published a selection of them. So that was in 1946 when these these events were very fresh still in people's minds. So there were certain circles in which people uh, talked about this. In general, in society, I think it's perfectly clear at the end of the war that people knew about uh, what we would now call the Holocaust, although that term wasn't current then, from, from the newsreels that people saw before uh, seeing films at the cinema, uh, from the newspapers, from information about the Nuremberg trials and so on. Um, 
this information about uh, the persecution of the Jews and the uh, the persecution of of other population groups under Nazi occupation was quite well known, although it wasn't systematized, if you like. It hadn't been yet turned into a, uh, something that scholars were working on in quite the same way as uh, is the case now. So it was clear, I think, that there was no sense of what we might call today Holocaust consciousness. Survivors wouldn't necessarily get a sympathetic hearing in public where nations, particularly in the immediate aftermath of the war, many of the Western European nations were engaged in a process of rebuilding. And that meant by necessity not talking about collaboration, different sorts of deportees, uh, racial deportees, forced laborers, volunteers, and so on. They were all kind of merged into one. So although the fact that the Nazis had uh, committed genocide was, uh, was well known, nevertheless, it was a kind of undifferentiated uh, sense of criminality. So uh, Jews, for example, spoke about what they'd experienced within their own circles, not necessarily within a wider social milieu. And when did that start to change? And when did people start to feel more open about talking about it? I think in the 1960s, you see, first of all, uh, the Eichmann trial, the Frankfurt Auschwitz trials, you see the start of serious scholarly literature on the subject. So uh, Hilberg's book, The Destruction of the European Jews, is published in 1961. And you also see, I think, for, most importantly, you see the breaking, the, well, the beginning of the breaking down in the 1960s of many of the wartime myths. So the, the idea that, for example, that all the French had been members of the resistance or that all Italians were good anti-fascists. This narrative, which had been, I think, promoted in order to create some kind of social cohesion after the war, was being questioned now by filmmakers and by scholars uh, and by artists. And it, it started to allow for uh, a greater sense of differentiation between different victims. And so I think it's at, at this point you begin to see certainly that the term Holocaust begins to be used to refer to the genocide of the Jews. And uh, you have a stronger sense of the different experiences of different population groups under uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. That was Dan Stone. The Liberation of the Camps, The End of the Holocaust and Its Aftermath is out now in the UK, published by Yale University Press. In the US, it is due to be released in late May, also by Yale. Now, just before we go, I thought I'd read out a message that we received from a listener to the podcast at historyextra.com address. Xavier Pierre, who listens in France, wrote in to say, I'm sending you this email to express my gratitude. I'm a French history and geography teacher and have listened to your podcast every week for years. Thanks to this, I've now been able to achieve a certification which allows me to teach history and geography to secondary school pupils in English. Thanks for that message, Xavier, and I'm glad we've been able to help you in this way. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about the Second World War as we reach the 70th anniversary of VE Day. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.